Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, I'll be speaking with Monique Hurley and Amala Ramara Thinham, Senior Lawyers at the Human Rights Law Centre, about the Human Rights Law Centre's submission to the inquiry into Victoria's criminal justice system. Then we will speak with Tiffany Overall from Youth Law about raising the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to at least 14 years old, which is also in the submission put forward by the Human Rights Law Centre. And we have spoken with Tiffany many times about this very, this very frustrating atrocity that's happened where children really should not be in jail. They should be with their families and they should be with innovative programs. And indeed, Victoria has had a terrible crisis in regards to too many prisons and not enough communities. On Tuesday the 23rd of August 2021, the Human Rights Law Centre gave evidence to the inquiry, which will report back in February next year. The Andrews government should use the inquiry into Victoria's criminal justice system as the catalyst to finally end mass imprisonment, the Human Rights Law Centre will have argued in its evidence to the inquiry. On the, on the line, we have Monique and Amala, and we will speak with them about the submission and also talk about what's been going on with the over-incarceration of minority groups. Hello, Amala and Monique, and welcome to the program, both of you. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's, it's lovely to have you, and I'm sorry about the, the technical difficulties there. No, no worries at all. Now, both of you are senior lawyers at the Human Rights Law Centre, and Amala, I just wanted to make sure that I had the pronunciation of your name correct. Uh, you're saying it perfectly. Thank you. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we could start off um, talking about the submission, and I believe there was a media release put out in August, and the Do and Time show has provided extensive coverage about the over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and has also insisted that we need to build communities, not prisons. Can you talk about the submission and what the position is of the Human Rights Law Centre? Sure, we can. So the submission that the Human Rights Law Centre 
has put together is to a parliamentary inquiry that's on at the moment into Victoria's criminal justice system. So it's a Victorian-focused um, piece of work. And basically, um, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, um, Victoria is really in the midst of a mass imprisonment crisis at the moment. And over the last 10 years, um, prison populations have skyrocketed. Um, the number of people in prison has increased by 58% over the last decade. The number of women in prison has more than doubled. And the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in prison has almost tripled. And that that's all happened during a period when there's been a relatively flat crime rate. And so what our submission to the inquiry really wanted to, to look at and examine is ways that the Victorian government could take steps to address that mass imprisonment crisis. Um, it's not, it's really, really bad to have so many people in prison because prisons don't ever really remedy or rehabilitate people. Um, they only serve to compound and exacerbate disadvantage. And so the submission made, um, made a number of recommendations, but three of our key asks were that um, the Victorian government take steps to close prisons rather than build new ones and that the money currently allocated to building prisons would be better spent, invested in support services that divert people away from the criminal legal system, that the Victorian government needs to fix the broken bail laws to reduce the number of people, particularly women, being pipelined in and out of prisons on remand and that we need to reimagine the youth legal system, which um, it sounds like Tiff from Youth Law will be talking about a bit later today, um, which starts with raising the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 years old. Absolutely. And Monique and Amala, I think you, you both agree that there's been, um, you know, colonisation, systemic racism and discriminatory policing. And I know in the submission that... Um, Veronica Nelson was talked about and it was used as an example. Could we discuss that for a sec? Yes, so Veronica Nelson died um, in custody after she had been denied bail. Um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service is representing some of her family in the coronial inquest um, into her death that will, I think, be held next year. Um, and so that's her, her case is just a really um, horrific example of the really dangerous and deadly implications of the current bail laws that we have um, in Victoria. Reforms were made to those bail laws in 2018 that were really targeted at um, men who commit really dangerous and violent offending, but they've had the impact of... Um, they've had a really disproportionate impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and women experiencing poverty, um, which we see in the number of women that are currently detained on remand. In Victoria, the, last, the most recent data from Corrections Victoria shows that over 50% of the women in prison in Victoria as of June this year were um, were not sentenced for the offending that they were arrested for. They were there. Um, they were there on remand, and it's really. I think it's just at odds with what a lot of us think about the legal system. You know, I we think of prisons as places where people go when they're found guilty of an offence 
and a really serious offence, that the way that the current bail laws are operating in Victoria are making um, remands the default setting for women in too many circumstances. Absolutely. And so the, the broken, the, these new bail laws were meant to um, target men, but it sounds to me as though people, you know, women like Veronica Nelson who died in custody, and that was a horrific example of how, you know, she was charged with shoplifting, but she wasn't given bail because she didn't have anywhere to go. I mean, how, how, is, that, how is that correct, really? It's a really, really good question um, and one that we ask the Victorian government frequently. Mm -hmm. um, it's happening because of the how the bail laws operate. Um, we have reverse onus bail provisions which require people to show compelling reasons or exceptional circumstances why they should be released on bail. And if you have to, um, to meet one of those tests and you fail, then bail must be refused. And so that's um, trapping a lot of people in in the system. And then there's also been reform to the bail laws, which really widens the net in terms of the offending court by those provisions in the Bail Act. Um, previously, the exceptional circumstances test only applied to the most serious kind of offending. Um, now, if people engage in repeat low-level wrongdoing, like um, the example that you gave of Veronica Nelson and commit shoplifting offending, they can be held to the same standard as people accused of the most violent and dangerous crimes. And so those two things are really operating in a way that is criminalising women at really rapid rates, um, and that that needs to be changed urgently. Absolutely. And indeed, you know, as it says in the media release put out by, by the, the centre, stop building more prisons. The Victorian government needs to halt the construction of a proposed 106-bed expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison. Yes, they do. Um, the Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison isn't at capacity at the moment. And if the Andrews government, um, you know, listened to to us and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advocates and um, a lot of other people in the legal sector and did the bail reform that we asked for, there would be absolutely no need to expand the prison. Um, I think I, I gave a stat before about over 50% of the women currently in prison in Victoria are there on remand. And so if we were able to really reduce that number through bail reform, um, there would there's just absolutely no need to be expanding the Dame Phyllis Frost prison. Exactly. It wouldn't it be better to spend the money on more innovative programs? Exactly. And that's really what we're hoping that this inquiry is really an opportunity for um, us all to come together and really reimagine how the criminal legal system is operating and that the committee presiding over the inquiry can make some brave recommendations aimed at creating a fairer legal system for everybody in Victoria because you're, you're completely correct. Um, the money that's going into the Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison, for example, 106 new cells at a cost of $188.9 million, that money would be significantly... Um, 
would would make a significant difference if that was put into early intervention and prevention programs that are culturally safe and gender responsive that work to divert people away from the criminal legal system um, rather than the current system that we have where people are coming in and into the system and then getting trapped there. Absolutely. And so, so I'm, you, both of you have, have gone to the inquiry to give evidence? Yes, we both gave evidence to the inquiry together, I think, last week. I feel like my perception of time in the lockdown I is know. very... Is terrible, but I'm pretty. Was it last week, Amala? I think it was the week before. Okay, the week before last. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. Yeah, it's. And in fact, I was going to actually ask a question about the pandemic because um, I'm just having a look at your submission here. It's an excellent submission, and it's it well, talks you. about the impacts of the COVID nineteen pandemic and a decrease, decrease nationally in the number of children in prison. Could you explain that over the same period? Um, I think I can talk to this, Monique. Um, so yes, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things that we um, addressed in our submission and uh, the inquiry also asked us about is the number of children being trapped in the criminal legal system. So you're right, in that 2019 to 2020, in that one-year period, there were 623 children in prison compared to 560 in the previous year. And this was an increase in Victoria despite the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and what is otherwise a decrease across Australia in the number of children in prison over that same period of time. Um, and what we do see is that Koori children are overrepresented in this cohort. So when we look at what those drivers are, they are things that you've already talked about, things that are pushing them to have contact with the criminal legal system, including the ongoing effects of colonisation, including discriminatory policing, including historical and ongoing separation from family and experiences of poverty. And children are also being affected by those changes to the bail laws that happened in 2017 and 2018, which introduced those reversed onus bail provisions and had the unintended consequences of making it very hard for children to get bail. Um, so we've also, we also know we've also seen the number of unsentenced children on remand increase in Victoria. It doubled, um, so uh, between 2010 and 2019. Um, and as we, as we all know, prison is really harmful to children. Custodial environments are really damaging. It causes disruption to a child's family life and to their social and emotional development. And that's why um, the Human Rights Law Centre, alongside other organisations, are calling for that really important reform to reimagine the youth legal system. Um, and that starts with raising the age of criminal responsibility. And I believe the ACT has done that? Yeah, they have. The ACT have... Well, they haven't done it yet, but what they've done is made a commitment to raise the age. So they're going through that process now um, and consulting with stakeholders and also doing some really important mapping work um, to have a look at uh, the support services that exist and also to see whether there are any gaps that also need to be filled. Absolutely. And of thank you for that, Amala. And then, of course, we need to look... I'm just having a look at another part of the submission here, which, which is very relevant. Build homes, not prisons. Yes, we definitely think that we should be building homes, not prisons, and the Human Rights Law Centre supports um, the campaign currently being led by Flat Out, which is um, called Homes Not Prisons, 
and listeners can um, can look that up on online, and they've got an open letter that um, that anyone can sign, which is calling on the Victorian government to stop the expansion of the Dangerous Frost Women's Prison and reallocate that money to public housing and support for criminalised women and their children. Not to mention the fact that that we are in the middle of a pandemic and we have a lot of homelessness. And what about people, and, and particularly women, exiting prison and possibly having nowhere to go with their children? Yes, well, we see this a lot also where um, someone not having a house to go to is a reason why they will be often refused parole, um, but then when they get to the end of their sentence, too often um, people and particularly women are being released into homelessness um, in any event. And so it's a really perverse way that the system is operating. Um, if we really want a system that's going to to give people the best chance of succeeding when they're exiting prison, um, housing is a fundamental component to that. And yeah, rather than wasting huge and significant amounts of money into to building more and more prison cells. It's just really, it just makes, it just seems to make so much sense to instead be spending that money on um, building and supporting social housing. Absolutely. And I was talking with Karen Fletcher about this last week from the Fitzroy Legal Service in, in regards to... Oh, one of my to... favourite people. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. Really great advocate, and we were speaking a lot about overcrowding and talking about the, the coronavirus and how, you know, questioning the, the ventilation in prisons. Yes, prisons are really, really um, unsafe places for people to be at the moment, and we're seeing that unfold in New South Wales, where I feel like um, a huge number of advocates have been calling for governments across Australia to reduce the number of people in prisons as part of their public health response to COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic, yet um, governments have really sat on their hands and done nothing. Um, prisons, because of poor ventilation, lots of people um, in overcrowded spaces, um, you know, poor hygiene at the best of times, limited access to healthcare, um, mean that they're places where it's almost impossible to physically distance in the way that we've all been told to do during the pandemic, and it makes them a potential hotbed for, for viruses like COVID-19. And, yeah, we're seeing the numbers in New South Wales explode, really, and I think it's really time for the Victorian government to look at that and to take steps in Victoria to reduce the number of people in prison, particularly those who are most um, who are most likely to be at significant risk of COVID-19 should there be an outbreak, um, because, yeah, now is really the time to act. Case numbers in Victoria are going up, which is very stressful um, in itself. But, yeah, people in prison have described themselves as feeling like sitting ducks in there, and I think that that's... It would be good for politicians to hear that and to act on it before it's too late. Yeah, look, um, absolutely. I mean, I won't talk too much about the pandemic today because we're, we're really looking at the the inquiry. But I, before I ask, I just want to ask you a quick question about parole, the parole um, in, that you've talked about in the submission. But before we do that, 
Um, I don't have any confidence in ScoMo's national plan, really. Um, you know, these numbers are going up and, uh, you know, politicians want to want to reopen and cases are snowballing. Yeah, they are. And we're seeing that every time that there's an outbreak, um, that there is really restrictive measures are also put in place in prisons. And Karen probably talked about this last... Yep. When you spoke to her about... Um, 14-day quarantine when you enter a prison and then, um, you know, in New South Wales there's been a lot of lockdowns of prisons while they're trying to, to test people and figure out, um, you know, who's got the virus and who doesn't. And those lockdowns can often amount to solitary confinement. And so people in prison, are, you know, I feel like they're facing the risk of coronavirus in two really significant um, and really potentially deadly ways in terms of if the coronavirus gets into the prison, it could spread like wildfire and there would, could be real risks to people's health because of that. But then also they're facing um, solitary confinement-like conditions when they're having to go into prisons or transfer between prisons and when there's um, uh, potential outbreaks and they need to lock down the prison or there's not enough staff because... Yeah staff have had to isolate because they've been close contacts um, and yeah I think that it's a really there's a really common sense and safe solution to keep everybody safe during the pandemic and that's for governments across Australia and I think particularly in Victoria at the moment I think the Andrews government really needs to take steps to reduce the number of people in prison. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it is relevant, don't you think, though, in regards to the, the inquiry? Because that really um, ties in with, with the overcrowding and too many prisons, right? Yes, it does. And it also speaks to, I think, that there's, um, you know, prisons are places where abuse often thrives in the darkness. And um, it's not, yeah, I think the government all governments really treat it as a bit kind of out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. And we've seen reports throughout this year, particularly the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission's report on corrections, which looked at how um, people in prison, you know, that there can be systemic and serious wrongdoing in prisons and that we really need to shine more of a light on that. And I think that the way that governments have tried to to manage COVID-19 in prisons just um, is a part of that as well. And that's something that we definitely want the inquiry to look at in terms of if we're funneling people into a system where we're subjecting them to all of these really harmful kind of prison tools, um, how, how can we expect people to come out of, you know, to survive that and come out and reintegrate into a community? Because... Yeah, the overwhelming amount of people in prison are going to come out and, you know, become our neighbours and live in our communities with us. Um, we need a system that isn't subjecting people to really re-traumatising practices like solitary confinement um, that really undermines any kind of rehabilitative, rehabilitative purpose that prison could have. Absolutely. So there was just one last question. I mean, thank you so much, both of you, for coming onto the program. It's, it's been... I hope I haven't kept you for too long. No, not at all. <laughs> oh, great. Um, in rega what I'm finding really, really um, interesting here in the, in the submission under recommendations, where it says, repealing Regulation 5 of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. 
um, which which exempts the parole board from the operation of the charter. What would, what does that mean exactly? Because that sounds really really um, innovative, actually. Yes. So currently, the parole board isn't bound by the rules of natural justice, and it's exempt from the application of the the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act. And so, yes, that's really, really problematic in terms of people being able to access parole and there being appropriate kind of oversight of the parole process. Um, it's opaque at best. And um, that is a problem from our point of view combined with parole reform in recent years, which has really tightened... Um, and made it much more difficult for people to access parole than previously. And it's a similar story to bail reform in terms of um, parole reform really being driven by the, trying to address the actions of some men who committed some really violent and serious offending, but then also that having a flow-on impact um, and kind of trapping women experiencing poverty and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the prison system on the back end. So bail is kind of making it, making there be a churn on the front end of the criminal legal system and then parole is making people stuck also on the back end. Um, and that is really, it's, yeah, it's really problematic because it's meaning that yeah. less people... Um, are able to access parole, which can kind of act as a security blanket when you're trying to reintegrate into the community and connect people with services and do different bits and pieces. And so what what we're seeing at the moment is most more people are having to serve their full sentence and then being released um, at the end, sometimes into homelessness and not having the benefit of any of those parole supports. Well, we'll have to see if... Uh... If this inquiry bears fruit, I'm, I'm hoping it does, and, and we do need to, to chip away at this, don't we? And, yeah, we've got about three minutes left. Well, not even, but... <laughs> but um, in terms of the inquiry, one of the other... The, the last thing I ju just want to say is, then, can you talk a little bit about the inquiry recommending greater investment in culturally safe family violence prevention legal services to stop women who have survived family violence? Just being forced into the criminal justice system, or sorry, the criminal legal system. Yes, we can. And JIRA, the um, Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention Legal Service in Victoria, is doing a lot of um, really um, incredible and important work in terms of providing culturally safe support services for women, but um, really need, um, yeah, there needs to be a much more significant investment in um, in those services so that they can provide um, provide assistance to everybody who needs it. Um, and that's coming up a lot in the context of um, police misidentifying, you know, the perpetrator of family violence in, Indeed. in, in a lot of incidents, which is becoming... Um, well, I don't. Yeah, maybe it's already it's always been a problem, but I feel like um, it's there's more um, more attention being put on that in recent in recent times, and um, yeah, there really needs to be support services that can help women um, 
can help women navigate that process in a way that isn't criminalising them and driving them into a system that's just going to remove them from their from their children and from their family and from their support services um, and can actually um, support them to remain in the community instead of being funnelled into prison. Absolutely. And, of course, we can't forget... Well, we probably haven't got time to talk about that today, but strip searching is also institutional violence as well, isn't it? It is, it is. Monique and Amala, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's been lovely to have you both. And I think we should really perhaps uh, mention the website of the, um, the Human Rights Law Centre um, where people can jump on that website and have a look at the submission. Yes, if you Google Human Rights Law Centre, yep. um, that should come up. There's also the inquiry, the inquiries website if people are interested in making submissions or reading um, other organisations' submissions. If people Google the inquiry into Victoria's criminal justice system, that should come up and there's information about how to make a submission there. Lovely. And Amala, do you have any final comments? Um, no, other than I really support everything that Tiff is about to say when she comes on and talks about raising the age. Um, I listened to her as she gave evidence to the inquiry today and she was really excellent. Um, and we're also hearing that the Victorian government might make a decision about raising the age in the next couple of weeks. So there is some really important ways that people can get around that um, to show politicians that there is a lot of public support for this at the moment. Absolutely. And that was today, was it, that she gave evidence? Yeah, yes. Wow. Oh, very good. Well, it's all coming together. Look, thanks so much, and um, keep up the good work, both of you. Thank you. Thank so you much. so much for having us, Marissa. All good. Stay safe. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. You're back with the Doing Time show and you just heard an interview with Amala and Monique from the Human Rights Law Centre, senior lawyers that actually um, gave evidence at the inquiry a um, couple of weeks ago now, the inquiry into Victoria's criminal justice system and pretty soon we're going to be speaking with Tiffany Overall from Youth Law who is going to be speaking about um, raising the age of criminal responsibility um, of children from 10 to, to at least 14 years old. Hello, Tiffany. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Marissa. Thanks. It's great to have you. 
Um, now, you must be exhausted after today, giving, <laughs> giving evidence at the inquiry today. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I suppose a lot of the groundwork um, was done Good. collaboratively with a whole heap of members of um, Smart Justice for Young People, the the uh, Youth Justice Advocacy Coalition I'm, I'm involved with and co-convene with um, Anushka from West Justice. So we, we actually co, co-presented at the hearing today and basically tried to sort of walk the committee members through that through that submission. Fantastic. So let's put this in perspective and unpack it. So mm. first of all, could you just talk generally about the inquiry and then mm-hmm. um, move into, the, you know, what's the youth board's position? Sure, sure. So, I mean, obviously, um, and I'm aware you're just chatting to Monique and Marla, but the inquiry itself is obviously very, very broad, um, yeah. you know, potentially covering off on any aspects of the criminal justice system. Uh, I suppose we saw our role putting in a submission and, and giving evidence today as just making sure the committee really uh, also considers all the issues through a very, um, very much a critical lens of for children and young people. Um, I mean, the point of us, the obvious point being that their engagement with the criminal justice system. Um, you know, really increases any potential further offending um, and remaining in a system that once they hit the system, you know, it, it, the research tells us that they're much more likely to, to, to traverse further into the system and stay in the system. Um, so we, we just wanted to sort of bring that message home, I suppose, to the committee particularly and, and quite broadly. And we also thought there was an advantage in putting in a submission from a whole range of... Um, you know, so obviously youth law is part of it, but and other community legal centres are part of that submission. But we've also got other non-legal organisations. I mean, um, FICOS, uh signed on supporting it. Yakfix, the Youth Peak, signed on supporting it. Jesuit Social Services, um, Centre for Multicultural Youth, etc. So it's, it's, it was important to sort of be able to provide the committee with a aerial overview of sort of the whole interconnected service system, um, of which the criminal justice is a part, um, and suggest to them that, you know, we, we just need to be... Uh, um, we need to sort of encourage them to, and, and the government to view a child or a young person entering the criminal justice system. Often it's evidence of something earlier on in the system not working as well as it could, Um you know, in terms of the support being provided to that child or or their family, so we 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 spoke in very broad terms about that. You know, not to necessarily hold the child or family solely accountable for any offending, that it's a much bigger picture than that. That we all, um, you know, basically have a role: government, education, health, social services, legal services, communities to work together to provide early support to families and try and help those children develop positive, healthy, um, you know, pathways to, to be continue to be, connect with family, community and education and, and stay away, you know, wherever possible from the criminal justice system. Absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, isn't it true to say, and, and I'm assuming this was... Uh, spoken about in the inquiry that 
a child, every day that a child spends in prison, causes, you know, permanent harm to mm. that child's growth and development. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. That's sort of the key, key reason um, we, we sort of argue that why we need to raise the age um, criminal responsibility just to prevent that unnecessary harm to vulnerable children through that early ex exposure to those criminogenic aspects of the criminal justice system. So we, we know that damage has been done. Um, and, and as I said before, that we know that when they have that first contact with the criminal justice system, there's a much higher chance of future future offending and more likely to have long-term involvement in crime. So, um, yeah, there's lots of obvious reasons why we need to not, need to address that. Absolutely. And, in fact, I'm just having a look um, here at the submission. Um, I, I'm assuming Youth Law had a submission as well? Uh, we've actually, well, pretty much just endorsed Smart Justice for Young People because, I mean, we, sure. we, co we co authored it and we, we support everything in there. So I think I was waiting for the, um, having having the opportunity to hear the sorts of questions the committee were asking today to see mm. if there was anything missing that we could add uh, and, and contribute that way. But no, basically endorsing that submission you've got in front of you. Absolutely. And But, but anyway, look, you. Youth law has has um, specialises in young in working with young people anyway, Correct. and you've you've given evidence at other inquiries over the years. Yes, yes, you yep, know that's correct. Yeah, so, definitely. But, but you know, it's all about unity, isn't it? Organisations uniting. But I mean, the medical evidence, you know, with children being arrested by police and sent to court and locked away, aren't they more likely to develop mental illness? And die prematurely. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I'm not. I think that, that that finding, that research finding, medical research finding, is probably yeah. out there. I haven't seen that particularly, but obviously, very well aware of the harms caused to children by by you know spending time in detention. Um, yeah, we've definitely got um, Professor McCready and others um, from the Adolescent Child. Um, health centre sure. that could speak to that, yeah, much more expertly than I could. But yes, the, the harms are very evident, and the impact on mental health is very evident. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just asking just a general question there. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Because it is important for listeners to understand that children are not monsters. That yes. you know, what what is a ten year old child going to know about mm. right or wrong? Honestly. Mm. Yeah, no, no. There's definitely that that aspect of their, um, I suppose, just their, you know, um, development, you know, and their maturity in terms of what they do and don't understand. But that's definitely a huge factor. I, I, I think the other huge factor that we we just need to be, you know, really upfront about too is that you know we're not. If we're talking about young people under fourteen, that ultimately spend time in detention because um, I suppose when we say raise the age of criminal responsibility we're saying that you know children under 14 shouldn't even be charged by police there should mm. be some sort of alternative response and definitely they shouldn't be um, spending time in detention um, but but when we are seeing children at the moment in the current system around that 
10 to 13 mark heading detention. Um, we're not we're not talking about enormous numbers, Marissa. That's that's, that's right. the thing here. I mean, it's um, somewhere around 30 children yes. between 10 and 13 that were in Victorian detention during 2019-2020. So you you would imagine that if if that wasn't the response, if if they weren't detained, if we were looking for some alternate response, you know, I I personally believe that Victoria's got got the resources, got the know-how, got the programs to provide the necessary intensive therapeutic support, you know, both to the young person and, and family to, you know, to really address some of those underlying issues for that young person and, and provide the necessary support for that child to reach their potential and thrive. So um, it doesn't seem insurmountable. It, it seems achievable, and I'm Absolutely. not sure why we keep, you know, balking at it. <laughs> That's right. And I believe that the inquiry is going to be reporting back next year. Is that right? Well, I mean, what's the process from here on? Yeah, timelines. I think that I think that's correct. So I, don't, I think definitely next year. Um, I'm not quite sure of the month, how early in the year it is. February. Um, it's February. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> You're more onto it than I am. But <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think it'll be a, you know, really interesting to see what... I mean, obviously, I don't envy their task when you think of the breadth of the submissions and evidence they're going to hear, how they drill down to some fairly concrete, tangible, plausible solutions. That's really where we want them to land and where they want to land. Um, but I hope there's some real real um, common themes coming through some of the submissions, which I, which I do believe there will be. And I think... Um, bail reform will be one, but I think raising the age of criminal responsibility will be another one, um, and, and there'll be many others. But I, so I'm, I'm optimistic that they could come in behind, you know, our call for a commitment to raise the to legislate to raise the age of criminal responsibility. Um, but then obviously it's, it then comes back to how the government will respond to that. Um, you know, we know that government is doing some thinking in this space. They obviously haven't made any any commitment at this point. Um, so I think probably even before that report comes out, it's sort of a prime time to be sort of encouraging government to make that commitment. I think, I think the closer we edge towards a um, state election next November, the, the less chance we have of securing that commitment. We, we You know, we need... You know they'll not want to go into an election. I think making such, you know, um, you know, in their eyes anyway, um, risky sort of announcements. We don't see it as risky at all. But I mean, the reality is that I think they'll want to make a commitment if they're going to, with at least a year before that, you know, they hit their state election. So, we're, yeah, as a group, we're, we're sort of looking to ramp up our sort of advocacy um, to government in that space. Absolutely. And Tiffany, I mean, look, you might not be able to answer this question, but I'm just going to ask you anyway and see me. how you yeah. go. Have, <laughs> have you seen the documentary Incarceration Nation on NITV? Yes. I, I, no, I have to say, I, I have to confess I haven't. I desperately wanted to the other night. Was oh, on, but I, I've been meaning very, to watch very, it. 
it's very, very um, telling. I mean, you, you, I'm, yes. we all know, we all know this anyway. Yes. But, yes. You know, That's... have a look online and see if you can find oh, NITV. You know, the one oh, that tells the story of Indigenous incarceration in Australia from invasion to today. It's very, yes. it's yes. very powerful. Yes. No. I, yes, I've heard a lot about it, and I do definitely intend to watch it, and I'm, I'm encouraged. Yeah, listeners that haven't watched it either. Absolutely. It's, it's re- very relevant to your work in youth law, and you'd know this yourself because it talks a lot about um, raising the age of, of criminal responsibility, and yeah. it looks a lot at, at children, um, particularly Aboriginal children, in detention. Mm. Um, yes. And it was, honestly, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Mm. You know? Yes. And the reason yep. I've mentioned it here on air today is really just to tie in some real-life examples, um, mm. you know, about these the Aboriginal children that are not on country yep. and, and indeed non-Indigenous children as well, mm. you know, where children are meant to be with their families. They're meant to be, you know, participating in programs and I'm, and I'm hoping that giving evidence to the inquiry that, that the Victorian government is going to see that. There's that's got right. to be a health response here. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. No, that's definitely part of part of the call. And I think, I mean, I think, yeah, from our um, hearing this morning, I mean, we very much were emphasising the need to look to look at and, and find a way to end the criminalisation and overrepresentation in the justice system of. Aboriginal children and young people, but also culturally and linguistically diverse children and young people, young people um, with experiences of the out-of-home care system. You know, we've, we've just got to do better, you know. Um, we've, we've tried to, to find the fix, but usually by focusing on or on the individual young person or group of young people. But I think we've got to be much more... Um, Truthful and sophisticated, and that we've just got to acknowledge that that systemic racism is a key driver of of overrepresentation of children and young people, um, and, and young people from cold backgrounds. We, we, we must acknowledge it, um, and then commit to ending systemic racism um, and eliminating its underlying causes and conditions. Or else, until we make that major step, I'm not sure how we really. Um, get past these issues. I mean, raise the age is, is a definite is an important part of that solution. But until we address systemic racism, um, you know, I'm not not sure how far we're going to get. That's exactly right, and that's systemic racism and colonisation has really been at the heart of both of these interviews. And of course, you know, as you said, there's there's other minority groups, as culturally and linguistically. Um, ch- you know, children from yeah. that arena as well, yeah. Yeah. and we need communities, not prisons. Tiffany, isn't it? We definitely do. We definitely do. Um, you know, there's so much work we can do um, in in communities. I think you know, uh, we've, we've already got a sort of a strong service system. We just need need to be more targeted. We need to have more. Um, Therapeutic supports for young people, more um, supports on a much earlier stage for families. I mean, um, to, to keep to keep children in families, to keep them safe, to keep them in communities. Um, and again, I think we've got 
a lot of lot of resources and a lot of um, possibility in that space. And there's some really great examples internationally of of them doing really interesting work of keeping kids in community or out of typical youth detention facilities, at least. Exactly. Tiffany, thank you so much for coming onto the program. As usual, you're very informative. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's been great that you've been able to, you know, speak to the inquiry, you know, talk about the inquiry and talk about um, this really important topic. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks. Keep it up. Thanks. See Thanks. Now. Take care. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. And it's approximately 4.51 and you're back with the Doing Time show. And you just heard an extended interview with Tiffany Overall from Youth Law, who was speaking about raising the age of criminal responsibility of children from 10 to at least 14 years of age. Yeah, quite heartbreaking talking about that. And before that, you heard an interview with Amala and Monique from the Human Rights Law Centre and the lawyers there that gave evidence at the, at the same inquiry. So I'm hoping that we've been able to provide um, a very specific analysis of what happened at the inquiry. And we're just about nearing the end of our show. Before we go, I just wanted to talk about a media release that I received from the Refugee Action Coalition and it really ties in with the pandemic and, and some of the some of the ridiculous um, measures that, that are, are being taken by the uh, the government about not letting refugees out um, into the community. So two um, two MITA it's spelt uh, this detention centre in Broadmeadows two metre detention security guards test COVID positive. So basically, two security guards at Melbourne's Broadmeadows Detention Centre have tested positive for COVID. Refugees and immigration detainees in two compounds have been exposed to the infected guards. COVID vaccination at MITRE only started last Wednesday, so there are many with no vaccination at all. The guards' tests returned positive this morning and I believe that was a couple of days ago, but it is unclear for how many days they might have exposed other staff and detainees. Refugee Action Coalition has been told at least nine other guards from the security shift have been told to isolate. The federal and state governments have been warned so many times that it was just a matter of time. The federal government's own literature says detention centres are a danger zone, said Ian Rintel, 
spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition. The detention is a particular worry as many detainees have underlying medical conditions that make them more vulnerable to serious illness. The people in immigration detention should be released. It is a disgrace that they have not been released before this, but it's time for the government to act. So far, there has been no mention of COVID testing for the people in detention. The Department of Home Affairs advised that as of 28 September 2020, 247 people in closed immigration detention were assessed as particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. The Australian Human Rights Commission recommended in June 2021, among other things, that the following groups should be prioritised for release from closed immigration detention. People assessed to be at risk of health complications if they contract COVID-19. Refugees and asylum seekers transferred from Nauru and PNG for medical assessment or treatment and those accommodated in dormitory-style accommodation in low-medium security compounds. But that recommendation has been ignored. Um, so this was actually a, a media release that was put out by the Human Rights... Sorry, the Refugee Action Coalition. And I'll hopefully be having Ian on the show in a couple of weeks to talk about that. So it's approximately 4.54... And we're nearing the end of our show. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 or 5 for the Do and Time show. And we'll be going out now with our theme song, Blackfella, Whitefella, from the Rumpy Band. Stay safe and stay strong. Bye. Let's go.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.